All right, this morning we take up Psalm 72, a wonderful psalm uh, as we anticipate the birth of our king. Here is a psalm that is a prayer for the king. Last week we looked at a psalm that is a love song for the king. Now this is a prayer for the king. So Psalm 72, let me read it for us, the very word of the living God, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood. In his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So ends the reading of God's glorious, wonderful, infallible, and errant word. Again, may he write it upon our hearts this morning. As we come before it, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we come before your word. Speak to us now. Bless this time. Fulfill the promises that you have made, including that your word goes out and does not return to you void but instead accomplishes what you purpose for it. Make it successful in the things for which you send it. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us here this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you would have us learn from your word so that in doing so, it becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Again, gracious Father, we ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. 
I've come to a a bit of a conclusion recently. Um, Well, maybe not a conclusion. Maybe it's more of a theory. (laughs) Yeah, more like a theory. It's my theory. You can take it or leave it. Nothing profound. But it's basically this. I think everyone, deep down, when the rubber meets the road, when all is said and done, get to the nub and the heart of the matter, when you get right down to it, I think everybody really wants a king. Everybody, I think, ultimately, when when it gets right down to it, wants someone to rule over us, rule over us as a people, someone to be in control, someone to make the right decisions, someone to protect us, someone to defend us, someone to lead us into prosperity and well-being. Someone who's decisive, someone who's commanding, someone who everybody follows, and follows willingly. Everybody, I think, ultimately wants a king. And that's a pretty radical thing to say in the United States of America, (laughs) where we rebelled against a king. So you might disagree with me. A king is the last thing we want around here. We like our democracy. We prefer a Republic, where people have a voice and those who govern do so with the consent of the governed. We might prefer our individual freedoms to make our own decisions and to rule our own lives. But again, for me, when it comes right down to it, that's just a variation on monarchy. I'm the king of my own life. It's good to be king. And we might even argue that if I'm my own king, the only person that affects is me. But even that doesn't make any sense. Because if I'm going to be king of myself, that means by necessity that all y'all have to leave me alone. So I'm imposing something on the rest of you. And that's not really true or, or reality of life anyway. Everybody else compliant in our self-rule, leaving us alone. It's not going to happen. None of us is really free to rule ourselves anyway. Many of us here have a boss that we have to report to on Monday or some day this week. If you don't, there are consequences if you don't. You don't rule yourself on your job. Many of us here are married. And the scripture itself calls upon us to submit to our spouse tells us our body is not our own, but belongs to the other. And even broader, in the church itself, God calls upon us to submit to one another. Think about society as a whole. You can't just barge through a red light because I'm king and I get to. There are consequences. Well, we've all just agreed to those laws for our own mutual benefit. Well, then you've conceded rule over yourself to a bunch of other people in some way, shape, or form. And look, if we're going to cede rule over ourselves in some way, shape, or form to other people, I want that person to be good and wise. Quite frankly, I want that person to be powerful, to be able to enforce his wisdom and his goodness. The reality is, though, that it isn't. 
Look at our own political system here in the United States. Arguably, it's broken, and it's becoming more and more broken. The two parties, the two main parties, are more and more divided than they've been possibly historically. They seek more and more power for themselves. Cooperate less and less, because that would give some victory to the other side, and we can't do that. We see presidents, one after the other, accumulating more and more and more power to themselves. And we see political candidates appealing to our desire to have someone strong in control. We saw it eight years ago. The promises made. We're seeing it today. Why is Donald Trump so popular? You don't need a degree in political science to figure that out. He's popular because he's coming on strong. I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to make America great again. He's talking bold. He's talking strong. He's talking decisive. He's appealing to that desire that we have for someone to get things done. He's talking like a king. (laughs) He wants to be made king. I think in the end, when we break it down, all of us want a king. Again, a good king. A wise king, but also a powerful king. What do we have here in Psalm 72? We have a prayer for that kind of king. Psalm 72 isn't just given to us to teach us about Solomon or David or even just to teach us about Christ. It tells us something about ourselves. This is our prayer as well, this is our desire. God-given, God-implanted. If our hearts are in tune with Scripture, we want a king, and we want a king like the one in Psalm 72. And as we look at Psalm 72 this morning, I want to look at it from structurally from a couple different perspectives. One is, is the themes that describe the king, But there's also a a structure here that I want to point out first that I think is kind of interesting, and then consider a couple lessons as we finish up. So, diving right into it. Psalm 72. Let's talk about how this psalm is put together. It begins and ends enigmatically. (laughs) What is going on in this psalm? There's a puzzle in this psalm. It begins with the title, the superscript, some people call it, very simply, of Solomon. It ends in verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. (laughs) So which is it? Is this a psalm of Solomon? Or is it a prayer of David? Who wrote this psalm? Did Solomon write it? Did David write it? Well, one way is to look at the, the Hebrew. I won't bore you too much with it, but how this psalm starts out is with a Solomon's name with a little preposition in front of it. A preposition that can mean to or for or by or belonging to. And so some people look at it and say, well, this, this really is a psalm written to Solomon or written for Solomon on his behalf by someone else. Maybe David wrote this psalm for his son as instruction or as a prayer for him or both. 
So this isn't really a psalm of Solomon. It's a psalm for Solomon. There's a real problem with that, though. There's a whole lot of other psalms in the Psalter that have one word with a little preposition in front of it. That word is David, (laughs) and it's the same preposition. And every time we see it, we say, of David, because that's the natural understanding and meaning of this. So I think we have to go with the basic idea that Solomon wrote the psalm. It's of him. He put it together. But then what do we do with verse 20? How is this the end of David's prayers? And on top of that, how can this be the end of David's prayers when we have more psalms after Psalm 72 that David wrote? I mean, the very next one, Psalm 86, is also called a prayer of David. And then you've got Psalm 101, 103, 108, 109, 110, and many, many others. How could this be the last of David's prayers? Well, I think the likely solution, Calvin and others go this way, and I think it makes sense, that this was David's prayer. Maybe he didn't write it down, maybe he didn't dictate it, but as David was dying, passing the kingdom on to his son. This was his prayer, which Solomon remembered and put into psalm form. That makes sense. The dying wish of David the king for his son and for his sons to follow would be to be this kind of king. The kind of king described in Psalm 72. David then is asking God, give the people of Israel this kind of king. Give them this kind of prosperity, this kind of safety, this kind of blessing. So that answers that part. Now as to the rest of the structure of the psalm, (laughs) as you look at various scholars, they outline the psalm in, in a whole lot of different ways. My approach is, I like the way the ESV translates the psalm, and if you notice the way it's translated, you can see a change in the language of the psalm. Verses 1 to 11 and 15 to 17 are all the same in the form of requests. May this be true. May that be true. Let this be true. And then in verses 12 to 14 in particular, but also um, 18 and 19, we have... What really comes out of this as the results of the prayer, the answer, how that prayer is answered. And then verse 20 is kind of a final closing comment. So a way to look at it is that when the prayers of the people are answered, when the prayers of David, when the prayers of this psalm are answered, what results is what we see in verses 12 to 14 and 18 and 19. 12 to 14 focus on the result on earth for people, for the people in the kingdom. Verses 18 and 19 focus on the results that accrues to the Lord God himself who makes all this possible. And so he is praised. And so we can look, for example, at at verses 12 to 14. If the prayers are answered, this is the result. The needy are delivered when they call. The poor are delivered. All those who have no helper. When these prayers are answered, the king will have pity on the weak and the needy and save the lives of the needy. He's going to redeem their lives from oppression and from violence. 
precious is their blood. That's not just those who are killed, but those, it's just a way of saying they're precious to him. Their lives are precious to the king. Now look at the focus of those three verses. Good government, good leadership results in blessing to one particular class of people. Those who are poor and weak and needy. Nothing about the middle class. Nothing about the rich. Good government, good leadership, a good king benefits the poor and the weak and the needy. Why is that true? I had to ask myself that question. And I think, if I can offer an explanation, I think it's because of this. If you look at virtually any kind of government that exists or has existed in the course of human history, the average person finds a way to get by. We're, we're very adaptable human beings. God has made us very creative and very capable. We find a way to get by. It might not be a, as pleasant as we would like. It might not be as great a situation as we would like. We find a way to get by. A new boss comes in at work. I'm experiencing this at work this week. A new boss comes in. We're not sure about him. We're not sure about his leadership. He's new to us. We'll get by. We'll adapt. We'll make do. The rich, they get rich no matter what. They find out a way to stay wealthy and and do well. So in bad government, most people can kind of get by, if not thrive. Who suffers, though, when there's bad government? It's always the poor. It's always the poor and the weak and the needy. So I think the psalm, the psalm is pointing out these folks because they're the ones who benefit especially from a good king, from good government. Evil leaders don't care about them, or they use them, or in worst cases, they kill them, murder them. But the good, godly king, the one that we all desire, blesses the poor because they're precious to him. Now think about that. How do we typically measure good government? Stock market's going up. Economy's growing. No wars. Pick whatever measure you want. How does the, the Bible measure good government? <laughs> the poor and the weak and needy are taken care of. It's a different perspective. One that perhaps we ought to adopt. The second result from a good king is that God is praised. A good king's good leadership results in praise to God. Because the people see that God is behind the success of the good king. What we're going to see in the end is is really this, this king can only be God himself. We'll get there in a bit. The poor and the weak and the needy are delivered and saved and redeemed because God is doing a wondrous work for them. Because he alone does wondrous things. And as a result, his name is blessed and the world is filled with his glory. Again, (laughs) how do we measure good government? Stock market, economy, whatever pick you want to, whatever template or, or standard you want to pick. This psalm says good government results in praise to God. 
The needy are taken care of. God is praised. Which political party in America is going to bring that about? None of them. Which candidate that you've seen campaigning for president is going to bring that about? I don't think one of them will. Not one. How do we measure success? How do we measure good government? Well, that's kind of the structure of the psalm. There are also some themes in the psalm that tell us what makes a good king. I'm indebted to Matthew Henry for these ten themes. Let me go through them quickly here. The first is that there is righteous government. We see this in verses 1 and 2. And this justice, this righteousness are foundational for everything else. If you don't have justice, if you don't have righteousness, none of the rest of these things can exist. So the thing that we should be praying for most of all is for righteousness and justice to be practiced. The second theme, there is peace. Look at verse 7. It's a simple statement. Peace abounds. The righteous flourish and peace abound. Forever, till the moon is no more. So there's peace. Again, this idea of the poor and the needy that are taken care of. Matthew Henry sees this theme. It's in verses 2 and 4 and 12 to 14 that we just looked at. They're delivered, they're rescued, they're redeemed. The fourth theme is that oppressors are punished. This we see in verse 4. It goes with the deliverance of the, of the poor and the needy. The oppressors are crushed, says verse 4. Again, we've already talked about this. Religion flourishes. Not just what we see in verses eight and 18 and 19, but verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. Who's the you in that verse? Well, who are we praying to? We're praying to God. So God, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. True religion flourishes when there's a godly king. The next theme is there is comfort for the people. This wonderful description in verse 6. May the king be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Refreshing, life-giving, flourishing, comforting. It's a picture of of comfort and, and peace for the people governed by this king. The next idea is that this king's rule extends far and wide. In fact, it covers everything. Look at verses 8 through 11. He has dominion from sea to sea, from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Desert tribes bow before him. Enemies lick the dust. Kings of Tarshish, the coastlands, pay tribute. Kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And then the comprehensive statement All the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. There's no opposition to the good king anywhere. The next idea or theme in the psalm, this is a beloved king. His people love him. Look at what they say about him. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold be given to him. 
May prayers be made for him continually, blessings invoked for him all the day. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and nations call him blessed. They love their king. They want blessing for him, acknowledgement of him, gifts given to him. The ninth idea, prosperity. There is prosperity. Verse 3, the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verse 7, in his days the righteous flourish. And then verse 16, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. Grain does not grow on the tops of mountains, especially in the land of Israel. It's dry and rocky, kind of barren. Think of (laughs) the hills of Judea. The hills of Israel transformed so that grain grows on the tops of the mountains like it does, just like it does in the fertile valleys. What a picture. Prosperity abounds under the rule of the righteous king. And then finally, the last characteristic from verse 17, his rule is perpetual. It endures forever. It's a prayer. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. That's not just a a request that he be remembered, but that he himself flourish and endure for all eternity. That's quite a description. Prayer for a great and wonderful and awesome king. So what do we make of all this? Well, my first impression is, wow, if we could have this kind of a king, if we could have this kind of a ruler, sign me up. I'm in. This is great. Prosperity, peace, the poor taken care of, joy, blessing, God's praises abounding. I want this kind of a king. I want David's prayer answered. And more than that, this is, this is a standard that we can hold up to our leaders, our current leaders, and say, this is who you're supposed to be. You want to be my president? This is the model I have. What are you going to do for the poor and the needy? What are you going to do for the name of God and the flourishing of his worship? I don't care if it's a prime minister, a president, a governor, a mayor, a state assembly person, I don't care who they are. You know, we have this incredible privilege in our country of voting for our leaders. Do we use this standard in evaluating them? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't this be our standard? But we fall into the trap of seeing things through the lenses of partisan party politics. One side holds themselves up as the protectors and defenders of the downtrodden and the poor and the needy and the victims. And anybody who looks at them objectively knows that they're just taking advantage of them. They're not helping them. The other side holds themselves up as the the bringers of prosperity and peace and power. But anybody who looks at them objectively knows that they're just in it for themselves. They're just in it for the rich and the greedy. And it's no wonder that the 
the two sides have the, the stereotypes that they do. This is almost also a model for any leader in any situation. A boss at work, an elder or a deacon in the church, a husband, parents in the home. Is this how we strive to lead? Because it's how we should, I think. And when we come to elect leaders in this church, are these the kinds of leaders that we're going to look for? Guided as well by the guidelines of Timothy and Titus. What a standard for leadership this is. What an incredible difference this is from the, the standard of the world around us. So my first impression is, wow, sign me up for this king. I want this king who crushes all opposition and raises up the poor and needy and brings honor and glory to God. My second impression, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Who's ever seen this? Where has this ever happened in the whole history of the world? Where is this kingdom? And think back even on biblical history. Solomon was a great king. The queen of Sheba brought him presents and sought to see his wisdom for herself. Solomon was an incredible king. Expanded the borders of the nation. Brought other nations in subjection to him. But he died. And he himself was wicked and sinful. And after him, a succession of, well, some good kings, but mostly bad kings. The northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king. By God's standards, they had success. There were kings who built cities and had great success in war, expanded the power and wealth of the northern kingdom of Israel. But in God's evaluation, they were all evil. And in the south, in Judah, occasionally there was a good king, but most of them were pretty rotten. So where have we ever seen a, a king, a ruler, like the one described in Psalm 72? In what country? When? Where? Ever? Nowhere. <laughs> or even make it simpler, who's ever had this kind of a boss at work? A leader that you follow in whatever endeavor, in any realm of life. The truth is we... We human beings fall terribly short of this ideal king in Psalm 72. We can't live up to the standard, and none of our leaders can. Nevertheless, we need a king like this. We need a divine king in the end. And I think the internal evidence of the psalm shows us that in the end, the only king who rules like this is God himself. Note some of the things in here. The prayer in the psalmist for a king who has an everlasting kingdom, from verse 17. A universal kingdom, from verse 11. Who creates peace with God and peace among men, from verses 5 and 7. A king who is served in love, 15, 17, and 18. David and Solomon were loved, but they had enemies, even within their own family. This is a king through whom all nations are blessed, according to verse 17. 
everlasting kingdom. Who is everlasting and eternal but God? Universal rule. Who has that but God? Who brings peace but God? What king is more loved by his people than God? And in no other king are all the nations of the world blessed. Ultimately, this psalm has to find its answer in God. And in particular, in David's son, Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, but he lives again eternally and is king over all creation. We're going to see these themes in other psalms that we look at. David had been given a promise by God, a son who would sit on his throne forever, 2 Samuel 7, who would be a blessing. In Psalm 72, David is praying for that promise to be fulfilled. And I think we can say with some certainty that he, he hoped that would be Solomon. It wasn't. He's praying for that son Praying for that son to rule in this way, giving instruction to Solomon and his descendants on how they should rule. But in the end, the answer to this prayer is found only in Christ Jesus, son of David and son of God, and savior of mankind. He's the one who's eternal and rules over all. He's the one who brought peace between God and man and among men, taking away the wrath of God, taking it upon himself uniting us to himself, making it possible so that we can be adopted as children of God, made into one body in him. We love Jesus with all of our heart. Psalm 45 that we looked at last week. And this we is made up of some from every nation. That vision, that glorious vision of Revelation chapter 5. All nations indeed are blessed through Jesus. And it's this Jesus whose birth we anticipate during the season of the year and whose birth we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. It's right. It's right and proper that we should do this. David hoped for this son. We have that son. The rule has begun. It's not yet consummated. It's not yet complete. It will be complete when all those people are gathered to himself from every nation on the face of the earth through repentance and faith in him. In the meantime, we suffer through the ups and downs of of life in this fallen world of good kings and bad kings, of good presidents and bad presidents, of good leaders and bad leaders and the good and bad circumstances they bring about through their either wise or foolish rule. But in the midst of that, we can still celebrate our king's rule in his body here in the church because he rules in us and through us. And he rules the world as well. So we wait, we hope. We're like David. We're hoping for that king to come. And we pray that that king will come and rule over us all. This is our prayer. This psalm is our prayer. It's our cry. (laughs) Relieve us from this terrible government that we're under. How? 
It's only going to happen in Christ. And when it does, the prayer will be answered. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. The elders, the beasts around the throne, the angels in heaven, and all of His people will say what is said here and what is said in Revelation. Amen. May that day come quickly. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we need a king. We have a lousy government. We have lousy leaders. At this point in time, we recognize that they, th- this may be a, a situation allowed by you for our own discipline and instruction. But we do ask that you give us wise leaders. But we ask especially that you would send Christ to be our king And we look for the day when his kingdom comes in all of its fullness and in all of its glory. We pray that in the meantime that you would mold us and even mold our leaders to be leaders more like Christ our King. To learn from this psalm, to learn from what it teaches, from the characteristics of a good leader and what that person looks like. Humble us and instruct us according to your word. Give us wisdom to live as your subjects in this world in which you have created and in which you have placed us. And may that rule be evidenced abundantly in the kingdom that we have in the church itself. We ask it all in the name of Christ, who is our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Amen.